We are a rich people, aren't we? And I mean we Christians for sure, and I mean we members of First Baptist Church. And uh, it goes without saying, but y'all really are in a good place if you're here because God has gifted this body with a lot of able-bodied men and women that can lead and teach and instruct and I haven't been in this pulpit on Sunday morning for five weeks, and y'all didn't miss a beat. And uh, I did have the privilege this last week of being in Ocala, Florida, downtown Baptist Temple, invited me to go do a missions conference there, and if you knew that or didn't know that, that was awesome. And uh, one lady got saved, that was great. It wasn't even an evangelistic conference, and a lady got saved, must, well, must be something to this preaching the gospel thing. And uh, a bunch of families are seriously considering how God might call them in the mission in some new and unique way. Uh, so that was awesome. That was, that was really cool. And when that was done, my wife and I had a few days to relax a little bit before we came back. Um, but 2020 certainly has been a tough year, right? Um, everybody wants to kind of hit the reset button, turn it off, reboot it, and start over again. Um, it, it is really a great day today for me just to... It feels like we're back to kind of more of a normal, normal setting. And so today's the day that we're starting a new book study in the Bible, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Um, it was January, actually it was January of uh, 2018, so it was two and a half years ago we started 1 Corinthians, and it took 18 months to finish that. And uh, took a little break, and then in the fall of last year, we started into the book of Numbers, and we went through a bunch of the stories in the book of Numbers, and the intention was to start 2 Corinthians earlier this year, but, well, <laughs> you know. So we decided to wait until we kind of could all get back in the house, and we're all back in the house, and so thankfully, uh, we can do that. So um, with that in mind, let's just jump right in and, and take your notes. There's a whole bunch of junk written in there, right? And you got to get the blanks, otherwise you won't feel like you've been to church. So... Let's get the first one out of the way. 2 Corinthians is written to describe all the various aspects of personal ministry. That's what it's about. That's what we're going to be studying for the next only Jesus knows how many months. Uh, it'll take a while because it's really, really good. Uh, 2 Corinthians is all about personal, that's the key word, ministry, personal ministry. Uh, and we're going to see that week after week after week in all the various forms that it comes. 2 Corinthians goes beyond the scope of what we learn about ministry from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is also all about ministry, but the book of Acts, specifically as the title says, gives us the ministry of the apostles, primarily starting with Peter and then primarily focusing on Paul. Uh, but it's the ministry of the apostles where 2 Corinthians gives us the ministry most specifically of the apostle Paul in his individual life. And as the apostle to the Gentiles, and ultimately writing the letters to the churches. Uh, Paul, obviously, is the model for our lives in ministry. So when we look at the book that is written, that is very personal, it's very uh, revealing of his personal life and his personal ministry. As our model, as our example, it then becomes very personal and very instructive for us all as well. Uh, we couldn't actually... Pick a better book at a better time, in my opinion, for the time and place where we are in history right now. And looking at the things that we've been through already in the first half of this year and the COVID thing and, and the series we did on the rapture and the end times and, 
Could it indeed be very, very soon that the actual calling out of the church will come? I actually think it will be very soon. I've been wrong before, but someday somebody's going to be right. And uh, maybe this is it. I don't know. We should prepare like it is, right? But not only that, because I believe that First Baptist Church is the point in the history and development of where we are at right now, that our life is, as a body is positioned where we have so many people that are trained and so many people that are ready and so many people that are looking out. And, and considering the times in which we live, we want to run to the finish line and we want to be involved in ministry. Well, let's take a look at the book that talks about ministry. Let's understand what to expect. Let's understand what it's all about. Let's understand how it's going to affect our lives. Active personal ministry is critically important to the life of any believer in Jesus Christ. Why? First and foremost, we're commanded to do it. He commands us to be involved in ministry. He expects that we actually do it. And there is this coming day of judgment called the judgment seat of Christ where he's actually going to judge us as to whether or not we did it. So it's an important subject. It's an important subject because, like I mentioned, if the rapture and the judgment seat are indeed sooner than later, well, we want to do all we can right up to the very end, amen? So let's learn about that. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to mention this one, but God willing, if he does give us many more years of life before the rapture, and that would be fine, that would be great, because it gives us more opportunity to win more people. Then ministry, personal ministry, is critically important for the fact that it is the only way that we can continue to propagate generations of believers that continue on after us. And I say that from personal experience because going back to my experience when the Lord sent me to the nation of Albania right after they opened up from communism in 1992, uh, that was a nation having been designated officially in their constitution an atheist nation. The devil was successful in one generation's time, in stamping out biblical Christianity. And that's all it takes. And, and we can talk about communism and the evils and all the things associated with that all you want, but there were a lot of communist countries in the world that had legitimate underground believers that continued through the time of communism. They were persecuted, but they continued. But in Albania, I was unable in 14 years to ever come across one verifiable story of a legitimate born-again Christian that continued to propagate his Christianity for that time. So in some level, there's some failure on the part of legitimate Christians in Albania prior to that time, continuing to do their job even though or because there was some persecution involved. I say that to say that personal ministry is that important. If we don't take it that seriously, there won't be a next generation if the Lord gives us time. Well, the book of 2 Corinthians will go through some details for you just so you have an idea. Uh, it was written shortly after 1 Corinthians. Uh, they received the letter 1 Corinthians. They responded back to Paul. And uh, we'll see as we get into it that there's at least one key event that we read about in 2 Corinthians that refers back to an event from 1 Corinthians uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is actually his third letter to the Corinthians. And uh, we see that if you were to look in 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul starts off by saying, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Well, I thought it was your second letter. Well, it's actually his third. 
In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. You, you can figure that out because if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle. Well, that's a previous epistle. He had written to them a, a zero Corinthians, <laughs> if you will. He wrote the first letter that maybe wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Maybe the Lord decided it didn't need to be preserved for us. I don't know. But whatever the case might be, there was a previous letter. The second letter he wrote is what we have as 1 Corinthians. The third letter he wrote is what we have as 2 Corinthians. Just, just to give you some idea of what's going on historically. As we studied 1 Corinthians, if you were with us, you probably saw that 1 Corinthians kind of takes the roof off of the church and let us gaze down into the church and to see, well, all the problems that that church had. Whereas 2 Corinthians kind of takes the flesh off the Apostle Paul and lets us look into his heart. So for 2 Corinthians, really, it, it becomes at some level a very personal book for Paul. It's, it's, it's his self-portrait. And since the Bible is clear over and over again, I don't need to run the references for you that we are to follow Paul and his example, well then, 2 Corinthians is the book that will show us what to expect. So again, looking at your notes, what you can expect with a lifetime of ministry is great sorrow and great joy. That's what you can expect in a lifetime of ministry. Great sorrow and great joy. Listen, it's been said this way. It's the hardest job or task you'll ever love. The hardest thing you'll ever love. It's hard. But there's no greater joy. And as a result of those extremes, it, it really does fulfill the single most significant activity that you could ever be involved in. You realize that regardless of your profession and the way that God has gifted you and, and, and used you to develop a skill that earns you an income to provide for your family, that that's important, but that's just the way he provides for you to carry out personal ministry. So let's just take a second, prepare our hearts to receive what the Lord has for us today as we begin to introduce this book, and then next week we'll jump into the pages of the book. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I do pray that as, as we come before your word today that you would help us to get our minds around the big picture of what it means to be a minister of Jesus Christ, what it means to carry out the ministry of Jesus Christ in a crazy world that we live in. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that while we do surrender, that your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher, we pray, Lord, that you would take the words that you would speak to each of our hearts individually. Lord, there's many of us in the room today, and what a joy that is today. But each of us, as many as there are, have unique challenges going on in our lives. And Lord, there's one message before us, but your spirit can apply it individually and personally to each and every individual here, and I pray that you'll do that. And when you do, let me just thank you in advance. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I didn't mention that the title of the message today is The Minister and the ministry, and, and that's what we'll see getting into it. That will be our simple outline. I didn't bother even putting that in a blank, but we're going to first talk about the minister. And uh, so, you know, just defining some terms very simply, uh, to minister, if we use that word as a verb, right, it would mean to attend to something or to serve, to take care of, to wait upon. That's what it means to minister. 
uh, the minister is now a, a noun. Okay, so the minister is the person who ministers. It's the servant. Um, if you were the type of Bible student that were inclined to, you know, look at what the root word in the Greek language was, uh, I typically don't do a lot of that, but, but the root word in the Greek language that's translated as minister, as a noun, is a word that, if I mispronounce diakonos, which sounds a lot like something you'll recognize, deacon. Because a deacon is a servant to the church of Jesus Christ in official capacity. And so that title, the minister, the, de the deacons of the church, the ministers of the church for specific tasks that they are given. In the New Testament, if you just did a survey of the word minister and a form of the word minister, you'll find that it's used 97 times in 87 verses. Yay. The reason I say all that is, is one, I want you to know I do my homework, and two, I want you to know that of all those times in the New Testament, of course the book of 2 Corinthians uses it way more than any other New Testament book. In fact, like 19%, almost 20% of all of those usages are found in the book of 2 Corinthians. And like I said, it is a very personal book for Paul. And it's because Paul is under constant attack because of what he does. And throughout this book, you'll see that he regularly defends his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does it multiple times. So as a result, Paul's view of his ministry is often very negative. And for example, we'll jump ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read a passage that many of you are familiar with. Paul's view of the ministry. How is Paul going to summarize the ministry? 2 Corinthians 11, we're going to jump in at verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And then he begins to defend how he understands it as a minister of Christ. I, in other words, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one, thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Can't wait to sign up for this job. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness and beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? All right, bow your heads. We're going to pass out cards and if you're ready to sign up, go ahead. You know, that sounds funny, but that's really how we should have an invitation. Because if you're ready to sign up based on that job description, you're probably going to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Those verses lay out 25 different persecutions. All in the process of Paul pursuing one responsibility. The care of all the churches. The care of all the churches. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. 
it's not just awful, right? There's also great joy in serving the Lord. The next continuing two verses, verses 30 and 31, if I must needs glory, I'll glory of the things which concern my infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forever, knoweth that I lie not. Or you could go back into 2 Corinthians and you could find the theme of joy like in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 3. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I come I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. See, ministry is very taxing because you're dealing with people and people are flawed and people have problems and people have needs and you stand for righteousness and people are sinners and they're going to contradict you and they're going to attack you and and yet when you persevere and yet when you see victory and yet when people then get saved and their lives are changed, man, there's nothing like it. You can't compare anything to it. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I'm filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Not when I'm avoiding tribulation. I can be, it's a paradox. How can I be joyful in the tribulation? Because it's the only thing that's that significant. That was Paul's experience. But ministry is not just for apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for deacons. It's not just for leaders. Every Christian is to be a minister of Jesus Christ. You guys know this. I'll remind you from Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul's talking about gifts that Jesus Christ gives to the church. And among the gifts it says this. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. That's everybody. For the work of the ministry, that's for everybody. For the edifying of the body of Christ. How long are we going to do that? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We continue to do that until the rapture of the church. Until we all come unto a perfect man. The body of Christ worldwide all comes together and joins with the head. And we become a perfect man. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. But most certainly, leaders in ministry have got to understand the things that will be taught in this book. Most certainly, people who are going to lead other people in ministry need to understand the life that awaits them. And 2 Corinthians is the book for you. 2 Corinthians is the book that's going to lay that out. And so 2 Corinthians offers a new topic or a theme or an aspect of ministry in every single chapter. And so I put in your notes, you can just look at them as I briefly mention all of them. Every chapter has a different theme, and you can see that as we go through it in the months to come. The first one, right out of the box, man, suffering. I mean... I mean, make no bones about it. it. This is not, you know, this is not lollipops and candy. You know, I mean, this is, this is tough. And he comes right out of the box and he, and he says life in ministry is tough. Listen, life in general is tough. I mean, life, generally speaking, is hard. And life, generally, if you're a Christian, is even harder because you're trying to stand for righteousness in a present evil world. There's a world system 
that is set on the course of hell. It's set against you, and you have to be like that proverbial fish swimming upstream. And Christian people, especially if you intend to live a godly life, well, sadly, 2 Timothy 3.12 kicks in. Because all that will live godly in Christ Jesus are going to have prosperity all their days. That's not what it says. They're going to suffer persecution. So, he just comes out of the gate. He gets it out of the way. What do you want first? The bad news or the good news? You always want the bad news first. You always want the bad. You want to end on the good one, right? I mean, I don't know about you. Like, even when I eat, I look at my plate, and I'm like, what's the best tasting thing? It's going to be my last bite. I do that. Do you all do that? Like, the very best tasting thing, I just said it, and then I eat the rest of it. I always eat all the rest of it. But then the last bite is the one I really like. Listen, if you're, a, if you're a leader in ministry specifically, I mean, you have to be able to teach and to lead. And, and really what chapter 1 is going to show us, comfort other people who are going through trouble. To guide those that are under his care. And not only with the word of God, which I know is fully sufficient for all things, but we are people with flesh on and you know how it is. Sometimes you just can't even receive comfort from somebody unless you know they too have been through it, right? Uh, if, if you've recently lost a loved one, if somebody else comes to comfort you who also recently lost a loved one, that is more comforting than just somebody saying, man, I'm praying for you, I'm sorry. Although that's valuable, it's not quite as valuable, it seems, practically speaking. It's not unlike the lives of the Old Testament prophets. I don't know how much time you spend noticing the life, the physical life daily of Old Testament prophets was, well, it was awful, <laughs> quite frankly. God made a lot of those prophets do crazy things and live out crazy circumstances physically because he wanted their life to be a, a visible illustration of what God was dealing with with Israel spiritually. Remember Hosea? <laughs> he, he had to take a wife who was a prostitute so that he could make the illustration to anybody who was paying attention. Yeah, what that poor guy Hosea has to go through with that terrible woman, that's kind of what I'm going through with you, Israel, because that's how you are. I, Isaiah was told to, to literally strip down naked and walk around and preach, and you're like, what, what, a, what a terrible, embarrassing, awful... And he's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's just how embarrassing it is. That's, that's how you're embarrassing yourself. Don't you realize that's how you look to me? But Isaiah had to do it. Like. And ministry leaders find themselves going through some terrible times because God knows we need to experience things that others are experiencing so that we can find the comfort of the Scriptures and then share that comfort of the Scriptures with them. We'll get into that next week. The next one is forgiveness. So, you know, you stand for the truth and you preach hard and you tell the truth to people. You stand against sin. But, man, that attitude of doing that, while that's all right, has to be balanced with individual application and consequences and, and the ability to forgive. If you can't balance truth and judgment with love and forgiveness, well, then you're out of balance and a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. 
And so, for example, the reference that I made is that Paul will make reference in just the first couple of chapters here that, remember that guy in 1 Corinthians 5 that you had to discipline out of the church because of the vile sin he was a part of? He is now going to exhort them to forgive him and receive him back. Because at the end of the day, the goal of ministry is not judgment. It's not even righteousness. It's growth. And you need forgiveness. Look, nobody here wants justice. You, every once in a while you might find yourself saying that, but you think about it for about three seconds. You don't, nobody wants justice. We want mercy. And the minister has to be able to display that. Number three, criticism. Listen, every single leader is going to be criticized. Um, therefore, if you want to be an effective minister of the gospel, you know, need to learn how to handle criticism properly so that you can continue the ministry without distraction. People are going to criticize you. They're going to, they're going to throw at you these ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem literally means they just attack you. It's what lawyers are really good at. So you compare the facts of a case and some witness for the opposite side has a good thing against your case. You just discredit the witness. So therefore his testimony is no longer acceptable because, well, he's a bad guy. People do that with you all the time. You take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all flawed. We're all forgiven. And they don't like what you're saying. So what are they going to do? They're going to attack you. They're going to attack you. But recognize that the ministry itself is so much bigger than any one of us. I mean, at the end of the day, who cares if you attack me? I'm supposed to be dead. My life is supposed to be hid with Christ and God anyway. So you're not really criticizing me anyway. And if you can have that attitude, you can be a good minister. Chapter 4 is going to talk about transparency. At the end of the day, you need to rep represent yourself openly and honestly before people. And don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. I mean, be confident in who you are. Be confident in who God made you to be. Be confident in the fact that God has granted you a particular set of training and gifting and experiences. And just go get busy doing something for the Lord. Just be who you are. Quit apologizing for it. Well, you're not like that guy. That guy's way cooler than you. I know. I wish I was that cool, but I'm not. You want to get back to the Bible and get busy? I do. So, I mean, that, I've made a career of this, by the way. <laughs> I'm not winning any surveys of who's the nicest guy around, that's for sure. Um, chapter 5 is about judgment. Chapter 5 is about judgment. Uh, listen, none of us are above judgment. We all know that. We talked about the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to see that in chapter number 5. And um, Your sins were already judged on Jesus Christ, on Calvary. God, thank God for that. But our ministry, our service, what we do in the body after salvation is going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what it is? That's just a healthy reminder for everybody to keep in forefront. We need to be focused on the task. And we need to run to the prize because we're going to be judged for it one day. Chapter 6 talks about fellowship. If you're going to have an effective ministry, of course you need to have constant, regular, personal, healthy fellowship with God. No question about it. So that everything you do is an overflow. But man, you've got to have good, consistent fellowship with the body of Christ. You've got to have brothers and sisters you can count on and they can count on you. You can't do effective ministry alone. It's impossible. It's impossible because God designed it to be impossible. 
we collectively are the body of Christ, and each of you are a member individually. And all the members come together so that we can get something done for the Lord. And when people go rogue and they go out on their own and they say, you know, I, I love the Lord, I love his word, but I can't stand the church. Okay, well, that's a problem because we have to do it together. You need the fellowship. And similar to chapter 6, dealing with fellowship, chapter 7 rolls into the results you get from that, and that's comfort. God gives comfort in your personal life. When others can come and comfort and help you, And well, then that's what we can offer to others who desperately need it during that time. Again, without the fellowship of the body. I don't know, seriously, I don't know how lost people survive going through hardships in their life. Everybody needs to get saved so they can go to heaven. Everybody needs to get saved so you can survive the tragedies of normal life that it's on all of us. Man, I wouldn't want to have to go through difficulties and be in the hospital for a long time and lose things and all without the support of the body of Christ to come alongside. Chapters 8 and chapter 9, the only subject that takes two chapters to cover is giving. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us. It's the only topic that God just says, I'm just going to camp here a while. We'll go ahead and end that, start a new chapter, and we'll just, we'll just keep talking about this. And uh, that ought to tell you something from the start. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave. God's a giver. That's who he is. That, that was his initiation of ministry reaching out to us. He gave the very most precious thing, his only begotten son, so that we could live. You want to be like God, you need to be a giver. And so chapters 8 and 9 become the definitive two chapters in all the Bible on New Testament giving. It starts with the giving of yourself and therefore rolls into everything that you have, all of your resources, most certainly financial giving in the church. Chapter 10 goes on and it talks about, well, I'm going to call it the measure. In other words, our authority is given to us by God and not by man. So in chapter number 10, we're going to learn how it's not our job to look around the crowd and just make sure that I'm doing okay compared to you. Because everybody who looks around and compares themselves among themselves, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, they are not wise. Because here's what you do. you do. I know you do it because I do it. You look out among the crowd and you pick the losers. You're like, I'm not as bad as that guy. And you feel better about yourself. You know, but there's some stellar dude sitting in the corner and you're like, yeah, you know, look at that guy. I mean, I mean, he's cool, but I'm still better than that guy. <laughs> Right? I mean, we don't ever compare ourselves to the guys that are awesome. We compare ourselves to the guys that are like, eh. God just says, just don't do it. Don't do it. You don't measure yourself among yourselves. Just be who God made you to be and just go get busy. That's the, that's the, the drum that keeps beating in the background of this book as we keep going. In chapter 10, we're going to learn about our spiritual warfare and, and how it's not physical, right? It's spiritual. It's mental, it's internal, it's not outward. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, right? So just walk in the Spirit and just do what God has gifted you and called you and given you to do. And you will have a life that's joyful, that's meaningful. Chapter 11 deals with discernment. Man, that's, that's going to be a great time when we get to that because 
obviously, ministry is a spiritual exercise. And I say obviously, maybe not so obvious for everybody, but I think it's fairly obvious to any adult. Things are often not what they appear. Generally in life, right? Things are often not what they appear. So you have to be able to discern the spirits. You have to be able to discern and see what's really going on behind the scenes so that you can know how to formulate your response and your strategy and the right biblical answer. And without proper spiritual discernment, well, you're really never going to be effective. But can I just tell you, discerning what's really going on, seeing the unseen, and then talking about it does not make you popular. It does not make you popular. You just need to know that. Because when you do that, you're going to cross some people. You're going you're to pull their mask off. You're going to show who they really are. And they don't like it. So you'll be opposed. And you can see now how these topics kind of overlap one another. But you'll be opposed by the world. You'll be opposed by other believers. You'll be labeled as rude. And you'll suffer. Even physically, which was that long passage we read of the 25 persecutions. It's in that chapter. But people need the truth. The Lord needs us to discern and speak the truth in love. That's what he needs us to do. It's what we're called to do. So we need to do it. And when you do it, you have to balance it with chapter 12, and that's humility. Because at the end of the day, it ain't about you. It's never been about you, and it's never going to be about you. It's about Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if they like you. It doesn't matter if they think you're cool and they reward you or they don't. At the end of the day, if they're getting the goods, if they're hearing God's word, if they're making decisions, if life's being changed, and they never breathe your name, you can rejoice. Because that's real ministry. Too, too many people in Laodicea want to be involved in good things, churchy things, godly things, and they also want to be recognized. They also want to be compensated. They also want to be promoted. They also want to be put on display. They also want to be thanked publicly. And we should do our best to try and understand and help and thank people. I'm just saying, if it never happens, it's okay, isn't it? Why do we do it anyway? See, it really reveals the motive, and it kind of reveals the discerning of what's going on. Last chapter 13, I'm going to give it the theme of power. Obviously, any spiritual power in your life comes from the Lord, and any fruit or success in ministry is just a testimony to God's power working in you. So just experience the fruit, give confidence and power in the gospel, and let God do his work. As a minister of Jesus Christ in a sinful world, you need to understand 2 Corinthians. It is the Christian handbook on the life and consequences of personal ministry. And you can adjust your expectations accordingly. Some of you young guys are dreaming and praying about a life of ministry and vocational ministry. And, and in your mind, there's some level of glamour to it. Well, stick with us. We'll strip the glamour right away. 
Listen, there's great sorrow and there's great joy. And it's all about the Lord and that's all that really matters. All right, let's move on to the ministry. The ministry, again, a noun, an ecclesiastical function. It is the service of a minister of the gospel. Sometimes referred to using the word ministration, the ministry. Sometimes with the prefix ad, administration. Okay, so you can see how an administration of something is the service of that thing, right? So let's start by reminding ourselves of some things you probably already know in your notes. God has gifted, has gifted to us several things. First, free will to believe. God's gifted you the free will to be able to believe. You were not chosen from before the foundation of the world to be saved or to go to hell. God has gifted you free will. You can choose whether you want to believe or not. Once you choose to exercise your free will and faith towards Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, he gifts to you eternal life. And once he gifts to you eternal life, together with that, he gifts to you spiritual gifts so that you can carry out ministry after you believe. And that's what we see when we study spiritual gifts, one of the courses that we teach in ministry tools and training. But before we get into the details of 2 Corinthians next week, we, we do need to clarify for a minute here exactly what biblical ministry is and what biblical ministry is not. And because of poor theology and private interpretations and no authority of Scripture in their lives, people misunderstand and misapply what they call biblical ministry and what it really is. So make no bones about it. Biblical ministry consists only of things that are eternal. That's what biblical ministry is. Things that are eternal. God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. Those are the only things that are eternal. So biblical ministry is going to have to do with God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. Now, if you happen to be one of the very few people who may be listening to me, and you're just a little cheesed that I said that because you do things that are service-oriented in the church that are just physical. You help with coffee. You help set up a stage. You do a lot of different... Those are fantastic. Those are great. Those are wonderful. Those are needed. They aid in the service of others doing ministry. They're, we need volunteers in a church this size. We couldn't do it without you. They're fine. They're good. They're wonderful. We all do some of those things. But just don't confuse the definition in your mind. In of itself, because you shake a hand or pour a cup of coffee or, or lay a string a cable across the stage, is not the fulfillment of biblical ministry. And God's desire for you, Christian, is to be involved in biblical ministry. It's taking the Word of God and people and putting them together. That's what biblical ministry is. And so thank God for everybody who does the things that they do physically. We need that. Yet at the same time, we need everybody to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think that we can best get our mind wrapped around this by looking at, I know, sorry, English, grammar, three prepositions. We're going to look at three different prepositions, and that's going to help you. The first one is to God, ministry to the Lord, right? Let me give you some references. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 2, and as they, referring to 
the five pastors and leaders of the church in Antioch, ministered to the Lord. Whatever they were doing, they were ministering to the Lord and fasted. When they did that, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work worn to I've called them. So in this case, you have some church leaders that are ministering to the Lord. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I think it's fairly obvious, but let me just show you Really, the parallel from an Old Testament context would come from Acts chapter, or Exodus, excuse me, chapter 30, actually multiple, multiple places in the Old Testament. But I just picked Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 20, and we're dealing with the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, where over and over again it refers to their service as unto the Lord. For example, it says, when they, the priests, go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offerings made by fire. Why? It's unto the Lord. So their ministry is unto the Lord. It's the ministry to the Lord. Well, what exactly is that? I mean, what exactly are you talking about? Well, you're talking about personal, intimate interaction between you and God. That's what you're talking about. They minister to the Lord first and foremost. We're going to eventually minister to others, but we're going to minister to the Lord first and foremost we got to develop that personal interaction with the Lord. So biblical ministry then is defined this way. This is the ministry of the worship of the Lord, which is a ministry of relationship. You're maintaining your intimate, personal relationship with the Lord through worship. And worship, of course, is more than just getting together and all singing some songs together. That is a way to worship the Lord. But anytime you commune with the Lord privately and make offerings of sacrifice to the Lord, that's worship. So keep your relationship with God strong, first and foremost. The next one, of the Word. There's the ministry of the Word. The Gospel of Luke starts out this way, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. So ultimately, the authors of the Scripture, as God has preserved them, are from these people who walked with Jesus Christ and were given this revelation, and they were ministers of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that in verse 6, "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament." Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And in Acts chapter 6, the early church in Jerusalem had some trouble, and they select and ordain the first set of deacons, and because the apostles had a specific mission, and it was this, that we, the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, and the ministry of the Word. You see, biblical ministry obviously is unto the Lord first and foremost, but then biblical ministry, it's the ministry of the Word of the Lord, which is a ministry of stewardship. He has made us able ministers of the New Testament. Well, you're only an able minister of the New Testament if you exercise the gifts God's given you. If you discipline yourself, right, be discipled, be trained, learn, study, understand, you're given a stewardship of God's word. We then need to be ministers of, servants of, attending unto the word of God. And when we can do that, well, then we can have our ministry understood as letter C for others. 
well, it's under the Lord, it's of the Word, but it's for others. Ministry is not for you. I mean, again, 2 Corinthians 11, who's signing up for that? We do it for you, and you do it for others. And that, somebody did it for me, or I wouldn't be here. Somebody did it for you, or you wouldn't be here. We're just paying it forward. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Well, somebody's got to do that. Romans 15, 16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of references. I just threw a few out there. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, I beseech you, brethren, for you know the house of Stephanus, that it's the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They've addicted themselves to it. The ministry of the saints. Can't get enough. No matter what I do, I got to keep doing this. I got to keep doing this. It's that important. So biblical ministry is the ministry of the work of the Lord, which is the ministry of fellowship. The work of the Lord, the work of God, is then through you. It's God's very presence. It's God's word working through you. And when that is going on, when God is doing that through you, it will always manifest itself in one or all of these three categories. And you won't be surprised what they are. Number one, it's evangelism. Of course it's evangelism. You couldn't have a more clear biblical directive than in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, that's not the case if you're a Calvinist. God took that on himself. We just get to sit around and watch. Listen, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What's that all about? To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. First and foremost, the manifesting of God's biblical ministry, of his presence and his word through us to others, is going to take on the form of evangelism. And, and let me say personal evangelism. Personal, individual effort. Talking to people yourself. Invite them to church. Let preacher tell them. Okay, well that's better than nothing. But it's not near as good as you taking the initiative, making friends with people, beginning to just talk to them and get to know them where they're at, find out what the needs are, pray for a door of utterance that God would allow you to turn the conversation to spiritual things, offer them the opportunity to understand that they can have eternal life in Jesus Christ, and if they're willing to hear it, explain it to them. When those things happen, and that sounded like it was complicated, it's very simple actually, you just have to bother to try. Then that's biblical ministry. Sometimes I think we've forgotten about personal evangelism. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. But watch thou in all things, we saw this last few weeks ago, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof 
of thy ministry. So evangelism is required for you to make full proof of your ministry, which, oh yeah, will be judged soon at the judgment seat of Christ. You need personal evangelism to propagate life to future generations, like we discussed earlier. And because evangelism is, well, that's the act of spiritual birth. And everything that's alive and mature and healthy reproduces after its kind, Genesis chapter 1. So if you're alive, Christian, mature and healthy, you should be reproducing new Christians. People should be getting saved. Now, they have a free will and they can say no, but you should be trying. So take the initiative. Get to know people. Ask God to lead your conversation. In case you're curious, what we have been doing in Columbus the last three weeks and what we'll be wrapping up tonight in Columbus is a system of evangelism training. And it's fairly detailed, but it includes accountability for people to be able to set up a situation where you're constantly and aggressively looking for people God would connect you with, how you can make friends with people and just get to know them and get involved in their world, like I said, and waiting for an opportunity to share your testimony and share the gospel and see people get saved. And it's kind of a cool deal. And you pray with us because I'm considering whether or not maybe we can roll that out in a training class coming up this fall for us. And we'll kind of see how that goes. But it's that important. It's that important. Evangelism is a funny thing. It's the thing that we all know we're supposed to do. We all say we're doing the best we can. But so few of us allow ourselves to actually be held accountable as to whether we're doing it or not. All right, the next one, again, should be obvious to a lot of you. It's discipleship. It's discipleship. John 17, 4, Jesus in his high priestly prayer before the crucifixion said this, Praise to the Father, I've glorified thee on the earth. I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He can't be talking about the cross. He hadn't died yet. But whatever work he was given to do on the earth, he finished it. You go down a few verses and you get it defined for you. Starting in verse 6, I've manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The work that Jesus was sent to do, specific, different from the cross, of course only he could do that, was to train faithful men who would carry on the ministry after he's gone. That's discipleship. Oh, yeah, and can I, can I emphasize, it should be personal discipleship. Oh, I invited somebody to a Sunday school class. That's, that's discipleship. No, it's not. That's a Bible study, and those are good. Personal discipleship. You are helping this newborn child in the Lord to grow up. Listen, you would never birth a baby, and leave it to fend for itself. That's criminal. They would arrest you, and they should. But spiritually speaking, we win somebody to the Lord, and we say, good luck, see ya. No, that's not acceptable. It's typical that if God allow us to be the parents and lead somebody to the Lord, as it is in a physical context, you raise your own baby. That's typical, Right? More frequently than raising somebody else's baby, right? I mean, I get it. In the physical world, adoption's a beautiful thing, and it's great on so many levels. But typically, is only 
even available because the biological parents either can't or won't take care of their own kids. Generally, we take care of our own kids. We birth them, we're going to raise them. That's the responsibility given to us. And in church, too frequently, we don't try and birth kids anymore. We wait for the church to hand us one that's already been born and somebody's just left them on the street. Man, you know, I'm, I'm happy to disciple somebody when you give them to me, Pastor. Okay, well, sadly, there's a lot of abandoned Christian children. There's a lot of newborn babes in Christ that nobody's trained. So we're glad to help. We really are. But how about we consider doing evangelism? Win our own and then just train them. Doesn't that sound like that would make sense? And the last one we're going to look at and we'll be done here is church planting. And this shouldn't surprise any of you. We're going to go back to Acts, chapter number 14. Again, this is Paul and Barnabas coming back at the end of their first missionary journey, starting verse 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, notice, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they went through the regions and they preached and they discipled and they developed and they taught all these things. And there came a point in time when the believers in these regions that they traveled had grown and matured and proven themselves. And they laid hands on them and they ordained elders in every church. And then they just commended them to the Lord. They said, you guys, are, you're able to do it on your own now. Verse 24, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God. Notice, for the work which they fulfilled. Jesus Christ talked about fulfilling the work and personal discipleship. Paul and Barnabas as missionaries talked about fulfilling the work in the context of planting local independent New Testament churches who were led by capable godly leaders who had proven themselves, had been ordained as elders, and then commended to the Lord to do their own thing. That's church planting. It's the goal. It's the ultimate goal. It's tantamount to the physical illustration of birthing a baby and then, well, after a day or two in the hospital, if you did it in the hospital, and you, you take the baby home. You, gotta, you have a stable home environment where the baby can grow up. And you, we need to have homes. We need to have churches. It's our Christian family. I don't know if you know it or not, but Jesus Christ didn't die for you as an individual. You say, that sounds weird. Well, just, just think about it. We like to say in evangelism, if you were the only person in the world, Christ still would have died for you. Well, I mean, that sounds good. But you're not the only person in the world. And he didn't die just for you as an individual. The Bible says he died for the church. That's what he died for. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Not each and every one of you. Of course he loves us. He loved the church, the corporate entity that would be his body. And he gave himself for it. He gave himself for the church. So biblical ministry is going to be in evangelism and discipleship and ultimately church planting. Because the church is the body of Christ. Not some independently started parachurch, do-your-own-thing ministry. The church is the one who is the biblically ordained vehicle and commissioned to continue Christ's work here on earth. It's the body through which the head commands. 
And we're not here to talk about a universal church. Everybody who's been born is in the church. No, the local New Testament church is the overwhelming majority of references that clearly that God is talking about. And since the church is not an organization, but an organism, we like to say that, and since like begets like, then we should expect that individual churches reproduce after their kind into new individual churches. That's what we should expect, right? This is the effort that we all need to be involved in. And all the more as we see the day approaching. So, the concluding question and we're done, what will you do as a minister of Jesus Christ in 2020? That's what my prayer is for you. That's what my desire is for us as we get into this book. What will each and every one of you as individuals decide you are going to do as your part of the collective effort that we put forth for Jesus Christ? I want to just glance for a second at the first two verses of 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds kind of similar to a lot of his epistles and the way that they start. I just want to break down the fact that he starts with the ministers. Paul, an apostle, the representative of vocational ministry leaders. He's an apostle by the will of God. Then he's got Timothy, our brother, the representative of a minister in training. And unto the church, which is at Corinth, because, well, that's where all the saints are. And because that's the end goal of any legitimate biblical ministry. It's a church. And then he talks about the ministry where he just gives us the two things you got to have to do ministry, and that's grace and peace. Grace is a gift given by God so that you will get up and go and do something. And peace, well, that's what comes when you know that you're doing the right things. Peace is the thing that you need that passes understanding when the road gets tough. And in 2020, 2021, are we really near the end? Well, of course we don't know for sure. But you don't really want to roll that dice, do you? Don't you want to get busy now? Don't you want to run to the end goal? Don't you want to do all you can to mobilize people and get the work of the ministry done while there's still time? Man, I do. Listen, Lord willing, before this year is done, we're going to be mobilizing people. That's what we're going to be doing from this church. The Horvaths, Lord willing, get their papers and stuff in order, and they'll be moving on to Hungary, and somebody's going to be moving on to Columbus and, and other places as well, which means there's going to be some people leaving. And you know what? The question is, whether you're a part of somebody who leaves or whether you're just here and we need people to step up and fill the roles they have been doing, what are you going to do? What are you going to be a part of doing, right? Because some people are going to step up and leave. And the rest of us are going to step up and send. The rest of us are going to step up and support those that leave and pray for those that leave. We're going to hold that rope for them. That's what we're going to do, right? Because change, well, it's a good thing if it's done for the right reason, right? There's no need to fear that. I know some of you don't like it, but it's okay. All right, that's enough for today. Let's pray. We're done.